when we saw the impact of having trails nearby on our employees, that underscored the importance of trail access and having a good place to ride near where you live or work. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 112 features Bob Burns, the advocacy guy at Trek Bicycle Company. We cover a ton of ground in this conversation, from the formation of Trek's rideshare program known as B-Cycle, to the Trek Foundation, with People for Bikes and NICA in the middle. You might be asking yourself, why do I care about B-Cycle or People for Bikes? This is a trail podcast. As you will hear, this is all interwoven as access for trails, especially for trails close to home, as this depends on quality cycling infrastructure. Furthermore, the Trek Foundation is 100% about trails. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect podcast with Bob Burns and the Trek Foundation. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I've got Bob Burns, the advocacy guy at Trek Bicycle, but he has a deep history at Trek Bicycle. He's been there for a handful of years now, and we're going to get into that, but he is also the immediate past chair for Wisconsin Bike Fed, the chairperson for the NICA Board of Directors. He's at People for Bikes. He's on the board committee. He's on the board of directors there, but he's also on the BPSA Trade Association Committee and the Electric Bikes Subcommittee. Have I missed anything as far as your involvement with advocacy? That sounds pretty uh, pretty comprehensive. Good morning. How's it going today? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a good Friday. It's not good Friday, but it's a good Friday. That's right. Any Friday is a good Friday, right? Yes. So let's get into your backstory and kind of how you rolled into Trek and some of the stuff you d- you've done at Trek before going deep into advocacy. Sure. Well, I actually got uh, started at Trek back in 1995 when the company is, uh, was much smaller than it is today. And I was the first uh, general counsel of Trek. So I actually began the legal department at Trek at a point in the company's growth uh, curve where it was ready for that uh, and needed that. And basically, that was my job. Um, and I was happily doing that job until about 2008, when I got a call from my boss who said, where are you? You're late for this meeting. And there was no meeting on my calendar, but I went downstairs to his office and uh, there were a bunch of people in there that were talking about this thing called bike share. And I was thinking to myself, bike share, bike share, what the heck is bike share? And then somebody mentioned the Vila uh, system in Paris, which I had seen and it clicked. Um, and anyway, one thing led to another, and um, Trek formed a joint venture with Humana Healthcare and Crispin Porter and Boguski, which led to um, a bike library done at the 2008 Democratic and Republican conventions. And that, in turn, led to the formation of a joint venture and ultimately the creation of B-Cycle. So if you're familiar with the bike share system in Madison or the bike share system in Milwaukee, those are both B-cycle systems, and there are about 50-odd B-cycle systems all around the country. So I ended up helping to get B-cycle started. I ended up uh, ultimately as the leader of B-cycle, and B-cycle ultimately became a wholly owned subsidiary of Trek. So we launched our first system in Denver on Earth Day, April 22nd, 2010, and it grew uh, dramatically over 10 years. So for 
for, from 2008 to 2018, I was both the general counsel of Trek and the president of B-Cycle. And then in 2018, I was going to retire. And John Burke, my boss, asked me to take on this advocacy role. So now I'm the advocacy guy at Trek. It's an awesome job. Well, clearly Trek takes advocacy seriously, just based on the different boards that you are on, including a thing we're going to talk about here once we get through those boards, which is the Trek Foundation. Why don't you give your quick overview on why Trek takes advocacy so seriously and what you guys have learned from it? You know, on the wall um, in John Burke's office is a poster that says, those to whom much is given, much is required. And he uh, is the advocate in chief. Uh, there's no question about that. He strongly believes in using the bike company, as we call Trek, to uh, make the world a better place in general and in specific, a better place for cycling. Back in the 1990s, the late 1990s, again, I was happily working away as general counsel and he called me and we went down to Chicago and we met with a bunch of people in the O'Hare Hilton. And that meeting led to the formation of Bikes Belong. Um, and Bikes Belong was the, it was the name of People for Bikes um, before uh, they changed the name several years later. And People for Bikes is today the primary industry trade association um, that is focused on making the world a better place uh, for riding a bike and also focused on issues of importance to the industry, how products are regulated, import-export issues, uh, and stuff like that. So it comes from a deeply held conviction that we have an obligation as fortunate members of the business community in Wisconsin and fortunate members of the bicycle community internationally to give back and to try and make the world a better place to ride a bike. Let's go into People for Bikes and kind of maybe you can talk about the transition of the name and what's been going on there and the importance of multimodal transportation because that's something that's near and dear to my heart. Okay. Well, um, I can't speak too much to the name change because when the name was changed, when early, early on in the beginning of the organization, I was more involved than I was, let's just say, in the middle years. When I was running, when I was the general counsel and I was uh, getting B-Cycle off the ground, I was a pretty busy guy. So there wasn't much time for me to spend with working on industry um, or advocacy issues during those years. So others within the Trek organization were, were playing that role. So when they changed the name from places, uh, from, from Bikes Belong to People for Bikes, I wasn't really directly involved, but it was, it was essentially the organization began to become more than just an industry-focused trade association. And it began to focus on, you know, the people that that benefit from the increased infrastructure, right? So the basic premise behind the organization originally, it grew out of a federal lobbying effort where a group of industry people organized essentially by Congressman Oberstar from Minnesota got together and went to Washington and lobbied uh, the Congress for some funds that ultimately led to the uh, Transportation Alternatives Program and funding for that program to create uh, cycling and pedestrian infrastructure. And so that, that effort is what led to the formation of Bikes Belong. And the original core purpose of Bikes Belong was to secure federal funding for bicycle and pedestrian projects, but then also to work with local, state, uh, municipalities, and advocacy groups to help them access that federal funding and actually turn it into, you know, bicycle infrastructure in their community. So if a local advocacy, advocacy group like uh, or advocate like Wheel and Sprocket in the Milwaukee area, you know, wants to help the city of Milwaukee to tap into federal funding to improve the um, Oak Leaf Trails in the Milwaukee area or the Hank Aaron Trail in the Milwaukee area, then the purpose of Bikes Belong is to help them access that funding and help them get that trail built. Over time, um, as the organization was successful with that 
core purpose, it began to get into other things like how e-bikes are regulated, for example, or how um, import-export duties are calculated and basically just represent some of the business needs of, of its members. So it became both. It became kind of a core typical trade association in that business sense. And it also became an organization that increasingly was interfacing with local advocates and local individual people that wanted to see infrastructure built. And so that, I think, is what led to, they launched a People for Bikes campaign. And I think that that campaign, which was an outreach campaign, and I believe that that campaign was very successful in terms of engaging uh, with the general public and educating the organization itself as to what the general public uh, was concerned with. And they were so pleased with it that they changed the name of the organization from Bikes Belong to People for Bikes. Yeah. And let's go into the importance of just multimodal transportation. Most people who know me know I work full-time for a department of transportation. Yeah. And I've been involved with projects that have added bike infrastructure within those projects. And I've heard, you know, the argument of, well, bikes don't even use that facility. Why should we add a bike lane? Well, the reality is bikes aren't using that facility because there's no place for them. Right. Or pedestrians aren't walking down that facility because there's no place for them. You know, so let's talk to, talk about multimodal transportation and the power of choice, because I believe if we give people the choice to do, or we, we got to provide options, right? Like we can't just rely on a vehicle. Vehicles, you know, some people, that's all they want to do, but some people can't afford them. Some people don't even want to use them, you know? So to have that power of choice, I think is super important. Well, that's a big topic. Gosh. I mean, <laughs> I, I can, can take a I high can... level view. Uh, well, I can start uh, actually with my experience in bike share, right? So when you put uh, a bike share system on the ground in a, com- in a community, you change that community forever. You change the experience of the people who live there and you, ex- and you change the experience of the people uh, who um, visit from tourists. It just qualitatively changes the community and the way people get around in in profound ways and i'll give you a a couple of examples we put a system in san antonio texas and we expanded that system what's interesting is you know you start um with uh, you can start with a small densely uh oriented system and it inevitably grows as soon as it gets there and people start using it and see the value of it and they start picking up the phone and telling their local city council member, why don't I have a station over here? Why don't I have a station over here? And pretty soon the powers that be see the value of it uh, to the community as a transportation amenity um, for the community. But we didn't, we put a system in in San Antonio, Texas. We did the usual uh, ceremony where I got up there next to then Mayor Castro and he said some nice things about the system. I said some nice things about the system. And then after the ceremonies were over, I was being interviewed by a guy from the local public radio station. And he was, you know, in his mid thirties, he was a heavier set guy um, and a good interviewer. And we had the usual typical interview where we went through all the stuff about San Antonio and bike share and B-cycle. And then he turned the mic off and he said, you know, I just want you to know when you guys put the first phase of this system in, I learned how to ride a bike. And I've lost 30 pounds. And I said, dude, turn the mic on. That's the story. Let's talk about that and how B-Cycle changed your life as an individual. So putting bike share in communities is transformative for the individuals who live there. It's also transformative uh, for the people who visit there. I like to analogize it to it's the difference between standing on the beach or having a boat, you just expl- you just understand and explore the city completely differently if you do it on a bicycle. And if you're visiting and there's a bike share system, that bike share system allows you uh, to explore the city um, in a completely different way than you would be um, if you were just walking around like a typical tourist. So there, there are those aspects of uh, intermodal modality, but the most interesting thing to me with bike share, just as I was getting, stepping away from it, 
it was becoming increasingly integrated into um, transportation systems in the cities where um, where it exists. So B Cycle, uh, like most bike share systems, um, has an app, and that app knows that Josh Bloom is a member, and it knows that you're in good standing, and it knows that you're standing next to the station on Philosopher's Grove in Madison. And it just says, Josh, which bike do you want? And you pick and you hit a number and uh, that bike pops right out of the dock. So you don't have to interface with uh, the kiosk. You don't have to put money in. You don't have to put a credit card in. All you do is walk up, hit a number and out pops your bike. So that, that level of seamless use drives ridership and ridership drives people wanting to know why can't I get off this bike share bike and use the same app to get on a bus? Or why can't I get off this bike share bike and use the same app to get on the subway? And increasingly, you're seeing that happening um, in, in, in bike share. So bike share is becoming a part of the multimodal transportation system in the larger cities uh, where it exists, where the local transit agencies have the capability, the financing and the will to to drive that uh, level of integration. And as I was leaving the biz, increasingly um, requests for proposals were wanting, definitely wanting to address how the local transportation authority could integrate with the, with the bike share system. So what happens there? What happens there is the more integrated the bike share system becomes with the transit system, the more the bike share system is actually driving ridership to the transit system intermodally. And the more that happens, the more it increases public will for cycling infrastructure. People who use bike share suddenly understand why maybe we really should put that bike lane in here, you know? The way people typically get introduced to bike share, non-cyclists, is so you would, if there were a bike share system in lacrosse, maybe there is now, I don't know. But if there were one, you would immediately join it. You would get a pass. You'd be riding it all the time. But the average person, it takes them a little bit of time to get used to the idea. And typically what happens is they go downstairs for lunch with their friends and they're all going to take the bike share system and so you get out your credit card and you rent a bike and you take a bike share system over to the local delicatessen. And all of a sudden you're back on a bike and you may be back on that bike for the first time in 15 or 20 years. And you're riding on a city street. And so when the city comes and says, we need a bike lane uh, down Fifth Avenue in New York City, the people who are on those bike share bikes say, yes, we do for the first time instead of saying, yeah, whatever, or no, we don't. That might be in the way. So. So that kind of integration um, and uptake drives intermodal uh, transportation. That's just from a bike share specific uh, perspective, which is one that I can speak to. I know in Madison, Wisconsin right now, the city's working very hard on bus rapid transit, right? So as Madison continues to grow and everybody wants to live there and many, many people work there, although... I don't know what the effect of the pandemic has been, but Madison has to get tens of thousands of people into that isthmus and out of that isthmus every day. And that's a major uh, problem for them. It's not just during a football game. You know, it's every single workday. People have to get down East Wash or Johnson or Gorham or whatever and back out again. And it's, a, it's kind of a big uh, hassle for them. So they're working on bus rapid transit, getting federal funding for bus rapid transit. And that city, of course, is a little bit uh, more progressive uh, when it comes to cycling than some other cities around our state. But they are working very hard to make sure that there is there are bike lanes incorporated into the infrastructure change that will take place in the city to incorporate where the bus rapid transit routes are going to go. And also that there are bike share stations and just regular bike racks so that you can ride your bike to the bus rapid transit station on the outskirts of town, lock it up, take the bus in to, to the downtown area, go back out in the afternoon, get on your bike or your bike share bike and, and ride it home. So those are a few examples. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Cause I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting as I've, as I've 
explore different avenues with this podcast, there's many times where I talk to people that they didn't ride a bike for a huge amount of time in their life. Yeah, right. They may be like an example that's coming out before this show is, is with a, a lady from Fire Mountain or Cherokee, North Carolina. And yep. she didn't, she hadn't ridden a bike since she was a teenager until her like mid thirties. That's a good project. Um, I'm familiar with that project and I've never been there yet, but I've heard a lot of really positive things about it. And, uh, that, that project, you know, on the reservation, the way it is, is a great example of how an institution like a tribal authority can put in cycling infrastructure and really begin to change and address people's health issues in a really positive way. One of the things you mentioned I'm involved in is NICA, and we're definitely trying to get a NICA team started there in that facility in North Carolina, because I just think it's got so much potential to positively change lives. And it's becoming a destination. People are going there. So that's, that's a really cool project. Yeah. Well, lucky for you that there'll be two episodes that come out on Fire Mountain before this one. Oh, really? Yeah. Good. All right. I'll listen. We go deep into uh, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians and how actually they're not, not, they're not actually a reservation. Is that right? Yeah. They acquired their land through legal means. It's, it's a very interesting story. And you'll have to, I'll, I'll send that to you before or when it, when it comes out. I'll totally listen to it. Yeah. It's a very unique, very unique community. You know, on infrastructure and on uh, intermodality, another thing that I get involved in that it, it might be inter of interest is uh, People for Bikes has a program uh, that they've been running now for several years, years called Places for Bikes. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but what Places for Bikes does uh, is it rates hundreds of cities around the United States now um, and, and all over the world, actually. They give each city a score, basically from zero to 100, with you know cities like Copenhagen ranking really up there in the high 80s or 90s, and most cities you know falling around a median score of somewhere around 36 or so, with a good score considered to be 50. That score is based on the city's um, cycling bicycle network. So. They look at a number of different factors. You know, is it is it a high stress experience to ride a bike in your city? Is it a low stress experience to ride a bike in your city? What are the bike lanes that are available? Do they connect to anything uh, meaningful? So can you realistically get on your bicycle on the outskirts of town and ride on a low stress bicycle network to your job downtown or to the dentist's office across town? What are the speed limits in your city in congested areas? And are they structured in such a way um, that uh, it's safer for bicycles? Because we know, obviously, that higher speed limits kill right pedestrians and, and bicyclists. So that is a really interesting program that, that your listeners might want to check out. You can just find it on cityratings.org on the Internet. And look up your own city. Like most of the cities in Wisconsin are rated. Most of the cities all around the United States are rated. And actually, Wausau, Wisconsin, uh, ranks really highly. I think it was number one at one point. The ratings change every year. So that's a cool program that yeah. I'm involved in. Yeah. And we just actually featured Wausau on two different episodes here at the last episode of 2022 and the first episode of 2023 because of their, their uh, I'm going to say, earth-shattering new approval of the Rib Mountain State Park master plan. Yeah, so that plan, right? That's such a good thing for cycling and for the community. It was, uh, well, that, you know, the bike fed, the Wisconsin bike fed, obviously, was aware of that plan. Um, and we were uh, privileged to be able to be, uh, have a little input into the plan itself. And we sent a bunch of local, the bike fed has, what it calls its council of advocates. So all around the state, there are 52 counties, I think, in the, in, in the state of Wisconsin. 72. 72, sorry. There you go. I knew there was a two in there somewhere. <laughs> and the bike fed has, you know, a representative or two in every one of those counties or almost every one of those counties now, which we try and mobilize for things just like the Granite Peak Rib Mountain uh, development. And we sent people to that public hearing to testify 
in favor of the plan and in favor of the, you know, the more, the more involved and better featured plan. And that was ultimately approved. So we, 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 we ranked that as a huge success for cyclists in Wisconsin, but also for the community up there. I mean, it's really going to be the, the Wausau Chamber of Commerce was, was all over that. It's going to be very good for that community. So the Chamber of Commerce's approach to that to me, it was just such a breath of fresh air and how they were, you know, I mean, my experience with chambers have been more like we, we market what we already have. And their approach was, we're going to get involved so we can actually get more infrastructure that will help our community instead of just telling people what we already have. Right. You know, and that's so important. Well, right. And I mean, as it's an old paper mill town, right. And, and, and leveraging the, the outdoor recreation asset. They have one of the best outdoor recreation assets in the state. And so they are wise to uh, be sure that 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 asset is being leveraged and kept up to date and modernized and and kept relevant. I think it's going to have a significant impact on on the economy of that city for some time to come. And my hope is that with this, with that approval specifically, the Board of Natural Resources or Board of Directors for the Natural Resources Committee starts to look at mountain biking more seriously. Cause I mean, we know it, that department has a huge hook and bullet, we'll call it department. You know, they do a lot on that. And then they also are pretty dominated with, I'm going to say more power sports related stuff, Mm -hmm. but with bicycling, there hasn't been a lot of going on within that board, you know, Wisconsin, I mean, maybe we can go into this. Wisconsin was on the forefront of rails to trails. Yes, they were. As far as I know, we like pioneered it. So Wisconsin had uh, a couple of very early uh, rails to trails projects, right? Obviously the Elroy Sparta trail, there's another one further North and I'm not going to remember the name of the lady who started it, but it was a long time ago. It was well before the Elroy Sparta trail. And you're right. So Wisconsin has a storied history with rails to trails. Tommy Thompson, right. Who grew up in Elroy, I think either Elroy or Elroy. He was a big backer. Uh, He was a big backer of, cycling and he was a big backer of trains so he was an intermodal guy for sure right tommy thompson still is for that matter he's you know he's publicly come out and spoken in favor of certain infrastructure projects around the state the other really positive thing i think we have going for us in wisconsin now is the uh, office of outdoor recreation so you know uh, governor evers a few years ago, got the Office of Outdoor Recreation, you know, within the auspices of the Wisconsin Department of Tourism started. And it is uh, headed up by Mary Monroe. Mary Monroe, someone I've known for a long time. She actually worked at Trek many years ago. And she's done a great job uh, of getting everybody in the outdoor industry in Wisconsin under the same tent, right? So, One of the things that I don't like to see in this state is I don't like to see the cyclists arguing with the snowmobilers, arguing with the cross-country skiers, arguing with the ice fishers, arguing with the motorboat community, arguing with the the kayak. It's just nuts, right? We're all uh, all doing the same thing, which is encouraging our customers to responsibly use Wisconsin's world-class outdoor resources to make this state a better place for the residents who live here, a better place for the tourism economy, for the many, many people who come here to use it. And we all need to be uh, working together. And what prevents people from working together sometimes is just simple lack of communication. And the Office of Outdoor Recreation has done, in my opinion, an outstanding job of just getting folks together in the same room to talk about what are our common interests and uh, how can we work together uh, to accomplish them? So we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that. We need to make sure that that remains a funded office um, in the state because it's really good for Wisconsin's outdoor recreation economy, right? So, I mean, cycling alone brings, what, $2.6 billion into the state of Wisconsin's economy every year, according to the University of Wisconsin and Madison and all of the experts there. So that'll, that's just one tiny slice of the outdoor economy. The Office of Outdoor Recreation put out a report last year, which 
is definitely worth your listeners taking a look at. It's just a nine-page PDF or whatever, but it does a great job of summarizing the impact that uh, cycling and other forms of outdoor recreation have on the economy. Well, and we're seeing other states follow suit with those offices of outdoor recreation. So it's, it's, it's a growing trend nationwide. For sure. And for good reason, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, outdoor recreation is bigger than gas and oil, right? For sure it is. I mean, it's bigger than gas and oil and it's a lot better for the environment, right? Well, speaking of national stuff, let's pivot to NICA. Okay. Trek has a serious commitment to NICA. You're the chairperson of the, of that board and more locally, Trek hosts the Wisconsin State High School Championships every year on your at the Trek farm. Yeah, we do. You know, so let's talk about, you know, your view on NICA, Trek's commitment to NICA, and what NICA is doing for the mountain bike community. So NICA is amazing, right? It began as uh, an after-school cycling club in Berkeley, California, way back around the time we were starting bike share. So I had nothing to do with it. Like there were these guys that were out there that just started taking high school kids uh, riding bikes um, after school. As I understand it, they originally wanted it to be a road bike club and the school said no. So they said, so they started in a mountain bike club. That could be just urban myth, but that's how it began. It grew and it grew rapidly. Um, And soon there was a Northern California league uh, centered around the Berkeley origins, obviously, and the Southern California league. And then in rapid succession, other folks in other states said, hey, we want to do this too. And so now there are 31 leagues in 30 states around the United States, just over 26,000 middle school and high school kids that are participating in NICA and just over 14,000 coaches that are participating in NICA. Um, So it is a hockey stick growth pattern, it has gotten more kids on bikes than anything we've ever seen uh, at, at Trek or elsewhere in the bicycle industry. It get, gets kids out of uh, the house. It gets them away from their screens. You know, there, there are the heart of NICA is the team and the practice. So, you know, their teams practice maybe a couple days a week after school. And how could, what, what could be more awesome than that, right? I mean, you go to whatever mountain bike park and you meet your friends there and, you know, there's an, a nice coach or two or three or four there and you learn how to ride a mountain bike and then you go out and you have fun and you ride bikes with your friends. One of the things that's really interesting to me about NICA is it grew up in its own space. It grew up outside of the official hierarchy of school sports, you know, junior JV varsity. Um, it grew up, it grew up outside the official hierarchy of uh, USAC, USA Cycling. Today, if a kid wants to, if he, he can get uh, USA Cycling points in a Nike race, but it wasn't that way for a very long time. And it's still not a big part of the organization. The Nike is about fun. It's about coming out, learning how to ride a mountain bike, being respectful of your peers, inclusive of everybody, and having a lot of fun on your bicycle outside. And so if you've ever been to a Nike race, which I'm sure you have, you see how much fun those kids are having. It doesn't really matter who wins or loses the race. I would say, you know, the tip of the spear, some of the kids are pretty competitive and they want to win the race and that's fine. And a lot of the other kids are there just to have fun and, 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 and to be there with their friends. And, and they really do. They have a lot of fun and they're forming lifetime friendships uh, and they are forming, they're making a generational difference in cycling. And what I mean by that is you can just see when you're at a NICA event that that 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old young lady who is out there riding that bike it's not going to be very long from now when, when she's starting a family of her own and she's going to continue to be riding that bike and she's going to remember what an awesome time she had at NICA and she's going to get her kids involved in NICA and she's likely to be a coach in NICA. And so we're really making generational change in, in cycling with NICA. And I, I think it's 
It's one of the most exciting things I've seen, really. Well, and it goes both ways. I mean, I've seen it, and I said this early on when when the NECA program started in lacrosse, was that we started to see parents, more parents at, at trails riding with their kids that didn't ride before. And even lower than that, or different than that, is now you have a kid that's in the program. They maybe have an aunt, aunt or an uncle or a grandpa or a grandma that now just became a fan of the bike that didn't even know anything about it before. And so the way it has magnified outside of just, you know, kids on bikes is, is huge. I've seen it over and over again, right? Some kid says he wants to join NICA. His parents know nothing about it. They say, that's fine, Billy. You know, your Huffy bike is in the garage. Billy doesn't have uh, a water bottle. He's got uh, a mass merchant helmet. And they take him to his first practice. And he has a, a Mountain Dew a soda bottle in his water bottle cage. And he goes off and he has a tremendous amount of fun. And he uh, is, fe- is made to feel welcome by everybody there. Nike is, is very careful about making sure that everybody is valued and everybody is felt welcome. The parents very quickly see the positive impact on Billy. And it is not long before Billy's little brother wants to get involved. Billy's older sister wants to get involved. The parents start coming to uh, weekend events. They start coming to practices. When you go to those Wisconsin State Championships um, at the Trek Trails in Waterloo, and there's thousands of people there, right? Just thousands of people there. And you can see entire generations of a family there. So let's just stick with Billy. Let's just say Billy's riding in high school and his, uh, his little sister, Amanda, is riding in middle school. They're both there for that event, and uh, their parents are there, their coaches are there, their friends are there, their grandparents are there, their little brother is there on his Strider bike, and they're there for the weekend. They camp out, and they have a really good time, and, and, and so then it actually goes on beyond just those kids and just their family, because what happens is the parents become involved in the NICA community. They may volunteer to coach. They may not. NICA needs coaches. So most parents actually do volunteer to be some level of coach at some point. But regardless of that, they're there all weekend, camping out with their kids, having a, a time that the Wisconsin Office of Outdoor Recreation would approve of. But more importantly than that, they're in a big group of parents that are basically doing the same thing. And they begin to make friends that they wouldn't otherwise make. And it becomes a community, and I call it a tribe in and of itself, um, that people become members of and increasingly tend not to leave when their kids leave. So most parents, when, they're, when their kids are finished with a sport, they're finished with the sport too, right? When my son was finished with select soccer, that was the last day I was over on the sideline of a soccer game in the Arrowhead School District. I can tell you that. But in NICA, you see increasingly parents who have become a member of that community. And now Billy's off at UW-Madison, but they still are coming to the events. It's really, it's really astounding. It's something I've never seen before. And it's just sort of this organic community that's grown out of one Berkeley High School teacher's great idea. Yeah. And I'm glad they uh, pivoted to mountain biking over road riding. I do love road <laughs> riding, but I don't know if it would have had the same growth. I could be wrong about that, but I, but I agree with you. Well, you're talking about Wisconsin. Let's, let's take this thing all the way back to Wisconsin. Actually, we'll take it to Trek and we'll go to the Trek Foundation and the Trek Foundation Trail Fund specifically, because it's a newer, from what I can tell, it's a newer fund that you guys have started, foundation that you guys yeah. have started. And I, do, I did catch on some of your branding that you call it the Department of Fun. Which right. I really enjoy. Right. But let's get the backstory and why the Trek Foundation was was started. Because, I mean, we've already talked about how many different things Trek's involved with in terms of advocacy. Clearly, you're, you know, committed, fully committed into advocacy. So why another one? It goes back to that, 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 that uh, central ethos that those to whom much is given, much is required. And how do we use the bike company to give back? It's something that... John, Burke, and I, and others within the organization have talked about for a while. 
uh, um, to be honest with you, um, before it, it came to be. And um, we knew it was something that was needed. We knew it was something that we could do that would do some good in the world. And we began to see it with, first, I would say, with the development of the Trek trails across the street from our factory in Waterloo. You know, those are principally for employees and their guests and product testing, but they grew out of an organic need to have trails close by. So back back in the deep, dark, you know, early days of the 1990s, those trails weren't there, but certain Trek employees who shall remain nameless, you know, found the land and began going over there at lunchtime and perhaps uh, using it um, in ways that the original landowners um, hadn't pre-authorized. Let's just put it that way. But we had a very good relationship with those folks. And one thing led to another, and we ended up making an arrangement with them to authorize that use. And then we bought some additional land and we began developing trails. And I think that that clearly, when we saw the impact of having trails nearby on our employees, that underscored the importance of trail access and having a good place to ride near where you live or work. So that may have been the kernel of it. And just one or two different elements came together uh, within the organization. John you know, and Tanya Burke are philanthropists in their own right. And uh, they would get mad at me for talking about this. So I won't go into it in too much detail, but they do get involved in supporting various things. Um, and some of those things were uh, projects to develop mountain bike trails. So it, it just all sort of came together. The Trek Foundation is funded privately by certain individuals within Trek and by the, and by the organization itself. So it's a private foundation. It's focused on trail development, and it is specifically focused on uh, development of trails that are within a reasonable proximity uh, to a population center that provide access. So the trails will provide access to mountain biking for the community, but especially for those who might not otherwise um, have access, right? Not everybody has an $80,000 SUV with a $2,000 bike rack on the back and off they go with their $14,000 mountain bike, right? So how does a kid ride a mountain bike? A kid rides a mountain bike on whatever bike his parents can afford to give him or her and wherever that kid can ride that mountain bike. So an example would be one of the projects we're involved in is Ealings Park in Santa Barbara, California. So Santa Barbara, California sounds like, I mean, it's a rich place, right? That's where all the movie stars live. They're dealing with their weather problems right now. But actually, Ealings Park, it, not everybody in Santa Barbara is rich, right? And Ealings Park is the old city dump. And it, the city, when uh, I'm sure uh, you know, the time came for them to close that early landfill or dump down, they turned it into a park. And it is a beautiful park overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And the kids, the local kids, did exactly what you would think. Right. They got out there on their bicycles and they created all these indie trails. And it was actually pretty awesome. And um, they approached the Trek Foundation and they're like, you know, how can we take these trails and improve them and make them, you know, a little bit more compliant to uh, relevant standards and just generally put some signage up, put some wayfinding up and make this uh, a trail system that's uh, even better and more attractive for everybody in the community. So that's an example of a project that we got involved in because it's free, it's open to the public and kids can get there, right? That's, th those are the big things. Well, and I was going to ask about, you know, what kind of are the, the guiding tenants or principles that the Czech Foundation is going to use to make decisions to invest. But at the same time, you just brought it back full circle to the beginning of this conversation, which is the importance of people for bikes, which is getting to trails. Absolutely. I ride to ride as much as I can. And that's the beauty of living where I live. And I, you know, and so that was, you know, that's, that's been a core principle for this podcast is, and we can, I mean, I, I do a lot of stuff where I call it IMBA in terms of the stuff they're doing and the impact they're making. And one of their, one of their big initiatives is more trails close to home. Right. 
And so it sounds like this is kind of falling right in line with, with that. And I think we can both agree that not everybody starts mountain biking in the mountains. In fact, most people probably don't ever go mountain biking in the actual mountains or what would be def- defined as a mountain, right? Right. And not, mountain biking really is, is a misnomer, right? Because most mountain biking is just cross-country riding, right? riding on trails. You know, where's the line between riding your gravel riding on a dirt road and mountain biking on a single track, right? It seems like it's a little gray there. But I, I, I agree with you 100%. And Ealing's Park is another good example. So the city of Santa Barbara has awesome cycling infrastructure, right? They are a progressive, well-financed city that gets um, the, the need for, they have a bike share system and they, they have a trail that you can ride from downtown Santa Barbara right to Ealing's Park and ride those mountain bike trails all day long. You, can, you don't have to ride in traffic at all to get to, that, to, get to those trails. Yeah. And before we take the Trek Foundation back to Wisconsin, do you have any other examples of a, you know, this is a pretty new foundation, you know, we're talking, you're going on your second, third year, right? right. Of actually being out in the public, at least, yeah. according to your video, which is a good video. Yeah. <laughs> good. I had nothing to do with that, but they keep me away from marketing stuff. But what, uh, do you have any other examples of stuff before we go to an example in Wisconsin, um, as far as what, you know, what the Trek Foundation is funded or looking at funding? Yeah, one of my favorite examples is a bike park, which is now named the Trek Trails at the John McCain Bike Skills Park, which is in Oak Creek, Arizona. And Oak Creek, Arizona is 20 minutes from Sedona by car. And it is in a different solar system from Sedona in terms of its socioeconomic uh, status. It is a rural low-income agricultural community. Almost all the kids at Oak Creek Elementary School are on Title, are title I, which means that they get free uh, federal, uh, they qualify for free federal meals uh, while at school. It's a low-income place. And a local nonprofit there um, called uh, Wheel Fun little pun there. Uh, they began an after-school mountain bike club where they would, on Thursday afternoons, elementary, the cutest, most adorable little elementary school kids, go to a designated room in the elementary school and they get to pick a bike and they put on a helmet and they put on a hydration pack because they're in the desert and they go out onto the playground and they learn some bike skills and uh, and then the, because they're way out in the middle of nowhere, there's a lot of BLM trails around there. So then they go out and they take a little bike ride on Thursday afternoon and come back. And it is the most fun they have all week. And like NICA, their parents started showing up and we started to to work with them. I think John Burke, well, he might get mad at me for telling you this, but he was donating, personally donating bikes to uh, this club to help them get those kids on bikes. And one thing led to another. And the, the superintendent of that school saw the value of this after-school program. And the guy who's, who's running that uh, club, a guy named Kevin Adams, said, well, you know, this would be a lot better if we could put a bike park right over here on this vacant land just empty land on school property. And the superintendent, to his credit, said, sure, let's do it. And, you know, most times when you start talking to a school about putting a bike park, a bike skills park on their property, you run right into the legal department who says no, right, immediately. But that's not what happened in Oak Creek. They, 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 they're focused on using the resources that they have, and, so, and, and what they have is land and nothing else. So, They came to us and they asked us, uh, the Trek Foundation, to help them build this bike skills park. And we did. And it was one of the first projects, it was the first Trek Foundation project that officially opened. And I can tell you that that park is utilized all day long, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It is the smiles on the faces of those kids is heartwarming. It's like n- nothing you've ever seen. 
And what's happened is now they're beginning to be copycat requests. So uh, there's another school in uh, the Verde Valley District called Daniel Bright Elementary School. And they're like, well, how come we don't have one? And we're like, well, because you haven't applied for one. So they pl- so so they applied for it. And the Trek Foundation is going to fund a bike skills park at the Daniel Bright Elementary School, uh, which is another very similar school to, to Oak Creek. So that is another example of a project. And the, the thing that I really love about both of those projects is this is these are kids who are learning how to ride bikes at school. And whether it's an after-school club, it's not a very big leap from the riding a bike in an after-school club or riding a bike at recess on the bike skills park to cycling becoming part of the curriculum in the school, cycling becoming part of gym class, right? And if we really want to develop the next generation of cyclists, you play soccer at school, you play baseball at school, you play football at school, why don't you ride your bike at school? And that is where um, this kind of uh, project, I think, could lead. Well, and the funny thing you said initially was that the school might have to talk to the legal aspect of this for liability or whatever. And my older daughter, she's broke her arm exactly one time and it was falling off the monkey bars. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Right. Right. And I just laughed. I'm like, wow, monkey bars are more dangerous than bikes because she hasn't done that on her bike. (laughs) Well, you know, I used to be a lawyer, right? And the lawyer's first job is to say no to everything. Right. So, uh, it's really fun not being a lawyer anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, let's take this back to Wisconsin. You know, there's a uh, there's a new project going on up in northern Wisconsin, and I believe it's called Trek Trails at Mount Mount Telmark Village, which is a recreation for those that are familiar with the northern Wisconsin area, a recreation of the old Telmark Lodge. Let's kind of talk about the overview project, the overview of this project, as you know, and some of the things that go on there, because it is more than just bikes. That's an exciting project, and it is, it is one that we are agreeing, uh, we've agreed to help fund. So it's um, organized by the Berkbeiner Foundation, right? Uh, ben Pop runs that foundation up there. That foundation obviously does several marquee events in, in northern Wisconsin uh, every year well-run organization, and they took on uh, the old Mount Telemark property and uh, are working on how are they going to redevelop it and uh, rejuvenate it and reorganize it to be uh, an economic asset for the near, you know communities of Hayward and Cable and, and just that whole big cycling community up there, obviously, with Canva and the, uh, all of the natural resources. So they came to us. With a proposal, um, we looked at it, but we took, we, you know, we went up there and visited it. And I mean, it's going to be a world-class mountain biking facility. <clears throat> it will be, already is, I believe, a Nike venue. So what, one of the things that we definitely look for at the Trek Foundation is how can this facility help the local Nike league and the local NICA teams hold their events. And one of the biggest challenges that you have at a large NICA event, believe it or not, is parking and camping, right? So if you have a thousand families that are all staying for the weekend and they're all coming and they're camping and they're bringing their pop-up trailers or their tents or their RVs, you have to have space and facilities for that. So one of the things that was interesting about the Mount Telemark project is um, given uh, the folks that were involved, um, Ben and Joe and others who understand that from the beginning, we were able to have a conversation about, okay, well, uh, Wisconsin NICA is a great league, but it, you know, it, needs, it needs better facilities up north. And so we were able to, from the beginning, start planning how that was going to uh, work uh, work into um, into their trails. The other thing that I liked about that project is the Berkebiner Foundation itself is a um, well-run, well-established, well-respected foundation, and they have a program called Berkey One, and that program um, is designed to help the local population, and um, in particular, some of the indigenous. Uh, residents that are up there to access outdoor recreation, whether it's 
cross-country skiing or hiking or mountain biking. And to make sure that the facilities that are built up there are not just for the rich people that come up from Madison and Chicago and over from Minneapolis, but are also serving uh, the local community. And the Birkenbeiner Foundation made a commitment um, as part of our funding to use the Berkey One program to help get local kids on bikes on those trails when they're completed. So it's going to be a very exciting uh, and world-class facility, I think, when uh, the Berkey Foundation is finished with it. Very excited about that one. Yeah. And from what I've seen, there's already been construction happening. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure who the actual trail builders are, but there's. I've been up there. I've seen uh, the trails under construction. Uh, so progress is underway. The first phase actually is done. So the, the, the NICA trails are done. The NICA overnight you know, camping facilities are done. They have a lot to be to start with. Like if you go up there and you walk around that place, there's a lot there already, right? They tore down the old lodge and they have a lot of old infrastructure that they have to figure out, you know, what they're going to do with or how they're going to adapt. But that's a good place to be starting from, you know, in my opinion. They're not they're not they're not starting from scratch by any means. Yeah, and if I remember right when that lodge, you know, shut down, I think it kind of Fired up, shut down, fired up. I had a couple of misfires and now it's obviously a, what we're talking about today. But that did leave a, a kind of a hole in that community in terms of outdoor recreation, even though there's a lot there. And so to see this being completely reimagined is pretty incredible. Yeah. Very talented people up there. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, the Ber- the Birkenbeiner is, is huge. The Czech, the Schwamigan, the 40. I mean, that's like one of the original mountain bike races in, I'm going to say, the world. Agreed. Agreed. And I'm the, that is, and the Berkebiner, I think, is the premier cross-country ski event, right? I mean, it, they're both just incredible events. And there's so much crossover between cross-country skiers and mountain bikers and road bikers and just cycling in general. Fat biking for when you can't really cross-country ski because your snow isn't that awesome. Exactly. Let's talk about the Trek Foundation moving forward. Do you have any, do you guys have anything that you can divulge or anything, any kind of stuff that you look for on the, on the horizon, kind of hints for people that may be interested in looking at this foundation? Well, we're working on a lot of projects. If you go to the website, if you're interested in applying for funding from the Trek Foundation, the things you should know are the things that I talked about. Um, and we're focused on building trails. We're not focused on you know, so many good causes in the world, but the Trek Foundation is focused on building trails. It's not focused on other kinds of programs. So if you've got trails that you want to build on land and you're interested in having the Trek trails at fill in the blank, then I would encourage you to go on there and and fill out an application. We're pretty much finished funding the projects that we're going to fund uh, for 2023. Um, and I'm on the process of working on uh, a number of agreements uh, for, for projects. In Wisconsin, probably the most exciting one that we're working on is uh, the Trek Foundation Board approved funding or helping to fund the trails at the Middleton uh, cross-country facility that's going in place. You may be familiar with that project in, in Middleton, Wisconsin. They're, they've got a couple of bike skills, a bike skills park, a pump track, some uh, snow bike trail uh, capability and some cross country capability that we're going to we're going to get involved in. But I'm just at the beginning of, of that one. Um, we're looking at a really cool project over in La Crosse, as you know. Uh, and again, those are early, early conversations. Um, and then there are just projects around the country that that I'm working on. It's kind of a, kind of a one man band here. So I am the Trek foundation. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's, uh, there, there's a little bit of a time issue, but I do as I do as much as I can, as I can. And we're, we're just getting started, I would say. And we're still at, at an early stage where I would say our thinking is flexible and we're open to new and creative ideas for things that work and make sense to us. We're only interested in working with partners that we believe in and that we believe share our vision um, of making the world a better place through riding a bike and cycling. So, yeah. And I, I really like that this is trail focused, you know, I mean, that's, 
that's the whole point of this podcast. That's why it's called the trail effect, you know, and right. the effects that trails have on communities and people and, and all the good things that they bring. I will say, and I didn't even, I, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but you did the lacrosse project. So that's not too far from where I live. The last project that I was involved with at Wisconsin DOT from a design perspective is is Highway 33 that leaves the city of La Crosse and goes into the town of Shelby. And one of the big things that I lobbied for and pushed for in the design process and was able to successfully implement was bike lanes that go right in front of that venue. And I remember having a conversation. I was the project leader for design. I remember having a, a conversation with the project manager on how you wanted to narrow the bike lanes up to keep the driving lanes 12 feet wide. Cause that, that facility formerly prior to that was built, rebuilt in 2014, prior to that being rebuilt as a four lane facility with no shoulders, no, no turn lanes. And we converted it to, we did a, what some people might refer to as a road diet. We turned it into a three lane facility with a two way left turn lane down the middle and put a six foot, basically a six foot bike lane in either direction, and then put right turn lanes into all the side roads. And one of the challenges was we wanted to keep the existing footprint of the road the same. It was, it was 48 feet wide. I know this, this is probably way into detail. I know this project well. It was 48 feet wide, face a curb to face a curb. And we didn't want to go 50 feet wide to get the extra two feet we needed for six foot bike lanes on either side. And so he came to me and said, let's do, let's do five foot bike lanes. And I said, we can't do five foot bike lanes. Let's do 11 foot driving lanes. Instead, you know, all the, all the research I've done in terms of like driving habits and and bike lanes, like drivers do not know the difference between a 12 foot driving lane and an 11 foot driving lane. If there are no physical vertical barriers and there isn't, there's paint lines on the road and that's it. And I can guarantee you anyone that drives that road today, they would not know that they're driving on 11 foot lanes, but that gave us an extra foot of width we needed on either side to have six foot bike lanes versus five foot bike lanes. That's awesome. Good for you. Just wanted to throw that one out there. There is a bike lane going right or two bike lanes, one in each direction going right past that facility. Good for you. Closing comments. Do you have any kind of words of wisdom message of the listeners, anything that you'd like to leave the listeners that trail effect with before we close this one out? Uh, well, um, was, uh, for those of you who live in Wisconsin, Wisconsin is a beautiful state and a world-class, uh, cycling destination. We all need to, uh, work together, uh, to keep it that way. We need to encourage, um, governor Evers, uh, to apply for all of the federal funding that, uh, the state is eligible for under the bipartisan infrastructure law and other areas of uh, federal law. You know, there's currently today more money available for cycling and pedestrian projects at the federal level than there has ever been. There is actually, for the next five years, $13 billion in eligible federal funding. And we need to get the state of Wisconsin to get its uh, applications in to get that money. So, um, I would encourage you to join the Wisconsin Bike Fed because that is what the Wisconsin Bike Fed is focused on. And in turn, we need to encourage um, the Wisconsin Joint Finance Committee, which makes the financial decisions in the state of Wisconsin, to understand that cycling is good for the economy in Wisconsin and that investing in cycling infrastructure is actually a sound transportation investment that they, um, as uh, fiscal conservatives, should see the, see, see the value in. And once we've done that, we need to encourage the Wisconsin Department of Transportation and Craig Thompson to build those projects and to help state and local communities to make the local match. You know, a lot of times projects get held up because Federal funding has a requirement for a state or a local match. And, and many times local communities want to build a project, but they just don't have that local match pot. And we're working on that at the federal level, but the state of Wisconsin could be doing a lot more from a budgetary perspective to help local communities make that 20% match. So I would encourage everyone if you live in Wisconsin, to get involved in the state's advocacy organization, 
that's working to make Wisconsin a better place for you to ride a bicycle. And that's the Wisconsin bike bed. And if you're listening to this outside of the state of Wisconsin, again, as my boss likes to say, the world is run by those who show up. So join your local advocacy organization and work to make your community a better place to ride a bike. With that, I'll shut up. <laughs> I think I like your boss because my email signature is the world is run by those who show up. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. Yeah. He says that, all that for years. Yeah. Like He's probably right. since for 10 years, ever since I've really gotten deep into mountain bike advocacy and in trail advocacy. And I mean, that was, that was the whole reason why I took that, that quote. <laughs> totally true. As we've alluded to already, you know, more, more bicycle infrastructure also helps us get to trails easier, you know, so it makes those trails closer to home. That's right. That's right. I also will say on the DOT perspective that we got to encourage employees of DOTs to really, to take advantage of those funds that you're just talking about, yeah. you know, and incorporate stuff into projects. A lot of that's education, right? We, we just need to let them know that we will, this is the stuff that we want. We understand that they have bigger uh, problems. They have to fix the bridges. They have to build the highways and we have to get the milk to market. And we, we get all that. But there's a lot that the state can do just by refocusing many of its existing efforts. And your example of the bike lanes coming out of lacrosse is a perfect example, right? Well, Bob, I really appreciate you carving some time out of your day. You know, it's yeah, as we've already alluded to, you've got a lot of things on your plate and you've been involved with Trek and in advocacy for many, many, many years, which is awesome to get, you know, someone that can kind of provide that both the historical perspective and the progress that we've made in a nation and, and in a state with, with bikes. So thank you very much. My pleasure. And thanks for all you're doing. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Also check out the new website, Trail Effect Podcast, with effect spelled E-A-F-F-E-C-T. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.